Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, Manhattan Beach was a thriving African-American community a century ago, but it no longer exists. As the 20s moved forward and there was more white interest in the beachfront, the battle against black ownership at Manhattan Beach and business ownership at Manhattan Beach increased. We'll discuss free blacks in territorial Florida. We can find scattered examples of the enslaved purchasing their own freedom through agreements with their enslavers and after decades of labor. And talk about the Chitlin circuit in Florida. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. When jazz pianist Sugar Underwood played in Manhattan Beach a century ago, it was a thriving African-American beach community with a boardwalk, pavilions, and black-owned businesses and homes. The community no longer exists. Tim Gilmore is an author and historian who writes about the Jacksonville area. Manhattan Beach was the first beach, actually, before the better-known American Beach uh, in uh, the Jacksonville area. Uh, the first beach for Black beachgoers during Jim Crow, uh, Florida. And uh, it absolutely, it had, you know, uh, you could rent bathing costumes, as they were called. Uh, you know, there was music, there were, uh, there were places to eat, there was lodging, uh, there were these big wooden pavilions that uh, businesses were set up in. And so uh, some of the, the better known musicians from Jacksonville in the area, there's a, someone named Sugar Underwood who actually recorded some songs uh, played out there. And it was, uh, you know, it was the place to go at the beach uh, for black people in the early 20th century. Industrialist Henry Flagler built a series of hotels along his Florida East Coast Railway, including the Continental Hotel near Jacksonville. Many of Flagler's railroad workers were African Americans, and he helped them to establish Manhattan Beach. Once Henry Flagler had built uh, most of his big hotels, really, and the railways into Florida, he set aside some uh, oceanfront. It was really wasteland you know, uh, for his black railroad workers. And that was the beginning of Manhattan Beach. And it became much more than that. It became, you know, the seaside resort for black Jacksonville and, and the area around it. Um, Marsha Dean Feltz in her book about American Beach uh, that she published in 1997 talked about uh, her, uh, uh, one of her relatives' memories of Manhattan Beach. And she said that they would take trains out to uh, the beach. And she had a hard time, Marsha Feltz had a hard time believing uh, her relative when she said that Black people would actually sit in the front in these trains uh, until she found out 
that uh, they rode in the front cars and white people rode in the back of the cars uh, because the soot and cinders and smoke from the train's engine uh, would blow back behind them and settle heaviest on the, the closest cars. But that was the origin of Manhattan Beach, and it soon became, the, you know, the place to be, the, the resort for Black Northeast Florida, really. Henry Flagler supported African-American land ownership in Manhattan Beach. The wealthy land developers who followed Flagler had other ideas for the property. Flagler set the land aside, set this, this particular beachfront aside, uh, but uh, he did not own all of it. Uh, there, there was Black ownership here, and that became the battle over the next um, probably two decades, uh, starting in, in the 19-teens, actually. So, um, you know, Black people owned property here. They owned businesses here. Uh, it was a Black-owned and operated resort, and uh, it was successful. So while Flagler was uh, supportive of this effort, uh, the new Atlantic Beach Corporation, which would develop uh, you know, the town of Atlantic Beach uh, in 1920s, uh, the Atlantic Beach uh, Corporation started a little before that, was, was not supportive of Black ownership at all. And the more white developers and financiers became interested in uh, the oceanfront and in developing, you know, land at the oceanfront, uh, the more heated the battle became until actually it became, it became pretty ugly. Historian and author Tim Gilmore says that Harcourt Bull was an attorney who worked to bring in wealthy white investors and stop beachfront land sales to African Americans. So Harcourt Bull is a pretty interesting character. He left a lucrative law practice in New York uh, to come down to Florida and be legal counsel for the Atlantic Beach Corporation. Uh, And, you know, uh, Flagler had developed this hotel and uh, there was this new community at the beach that would become the town of Atlantic Beach. Uh, In the 1920s, Harcourt Bull would be appointed the first mayor of Atlantic Beach. And, you know, it's interesting, some of what Bull says uh, can be taken a couple of different ways, but uh, I have to acknowledge local Jacksonville University uh, instructor Brittany Cohill, who's done a lot of research into this, uh, and she gave a presentation um, sometime back to the Historical Society here in Jacksonville. Uh, And she wrote, uh, it was Bull's policy to cease selling Manhattan Beach property to African Americans. The Black community could no longer endeavor to own an uninterrupted stretch of coastline in the Jacksonville area. As other white investors acquired surrounding property, efforts increased to remove the African-American enclave completely. And that's exactly what happened. Starting in 1915, there was a woman named Capitola Washington. Uh, who, uh, and she was a Black woman who was purchasing land uh, from Flagler at Manhattan Beach, and she had a hard time getting the deed for her land, so she uh, she got herself a lawyer, uh, Richard P. Daniel, who was a well-known um, white supporter of Black causes at the time, and uh, she demanded the deed for her recently purchased property. And there's a letter from uh, James Payne, who was Assistant Secretary of the uh, Atlantic Beach Corporation, a 1914 letter, and he wrote Harcourt Bull 
The Mayport Terminal Company agreed that they would withhold the deeds from these, and he uses the N-word, and give us the chance to purchase their contracts, but we have never availed ourselves of the opportunity. So this battle is already being waged in these stark racial terms. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's kind of shocking and yet not shocking when you know the history to see uh, you know, the, uh, that, that kind of blatant racism and correspondence uh, from, uh, you know, within this company. White investors continued buying up property and businesses in Manhattan Beach until African Americans were forced out by the mid-1930s. As the 20s moved forward and there was more white interest in uh, the beachfront, the battle against Black ownership at Manhattan Beach uh, and business ownership at Manhattan Beach uh, increased. So in 1929, there is, uh, there's an issue of something called Beach Life Magazine, and Harcourt Bull has a statement, makes a statement in Beach Life Magazine uh, about uh, the northern area of Atlantic Beach toward Manhattan Beach, and he says, uh, he calls it attractive land that is owned by a wealthy syndicate, which is waiting for the psychological moment to come when they will develop the tract as Coral Gables or Hollywood was developed. He says that moment may be six months away or it may be a year away, but come it will and it will come soon. And that uh, he's actually referring to uh, white financiers, including Ed Ball, um, one of the wealthiest men in Florida, and uh, the brother of G. Ball DuPont, uh, who was buying a property at Manhattan Beach. And what they would develop would not be that area. They were buying that property and um, trying to exclude Black ownership, but actually this would lead toward uh, Ed Ball's financing of Stockton-Watley and Davin's development of Ponte Vedra Beach to the south. So there's a, there's a 1933 letter where Bull's associate, William H. Rogers, writes, Edward Ball contacted me at noon today and said that he had just acquired title to the Manhattan Beach property. He would like to buy from us a strip of land about a thousand feet deep immediately behind his Manhattan Beach property. He would also like to get us to cooperate with him in excluding the Negroes from Manhattan Beach insofar as possible in order to get them entirely off the oceanfront. So uh, this is uh, this is 1933, and this is uh, in preparation for more white development uh, and exclusive development, uh, and most specifically, the development of Ponte Vedra Beach to the south. Manhattan Beach was not all about fun in the sun. Humanitarian Eartha White had a facility for sick children there. By the mid-1930s, like most African-American patrons of Manhattan Beach, Eartha White relocated her facility to American Beach. Tim Gilmore. Of all of the activities going on at Manhattan Beach, uh, Eartha White, uh, you know, certainly the greatest philanthropist uh, and humanitarian leader uh, ever to come from Jacksonville, um, and one of the most important humanitarian leaders in Florida's history, uh, started something called uh, the Fresh Air Camp, and this was for tubercular children. Uh, and this was at Manhattan Beach, and uh, this was the idea of exactly what's embodied in, in the title, that there was, uh, you know, something healing about uh, the air at the beach, and um, this, that idea 
really coincided with a lot of this is uh, a little bit later, but coincided with a lot of Victorian medical, um, sometimes pseudo medical thinking about things like that. But Eartha White, uh, you know, started a tubercular hospital in, back in Jacksonville, uh, amongst all the other things that she started an old folks home and an orphanage and uh, uh, finally the Clara White mission, which she named after her adoptive mother. Uh, and when uh, Manhattan Beach finally closed, when it was finally over, uh, she moved her facilities for treating tubercular children from Manhattan Beach to what's now uh, the better known American Beach, uh, which would be started uh, by Abraham Lincoln Lewis of the Afro-American Insurance Company, uh, a little bit north of Jacksonville on Amelia Island. An historic marker in Jacksonville's Hannah Park, where Manhattan Beach used to be, reminds us of a thriving African-American beach community that no longer exists. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org, where you can register for the Florida Historical Society 2022 Public History Forum and the 33rd Annual Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings Society Conference, being held May 19th through 21st in Gainesville. More information is at myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, the enslavement of Africans by the Spanish, the British, and the Americans represented an important part of Florida's history. The presence of free blacks in Spanish Florida is well known, but we don't always hear about free blacks during the territorial period. The 1830, 1840, and 1850 federal censuses show that free blacks accounted for a decreasing percentage of the total population over time, 2.4% in 1830, down to 1.5% in 1840, and to 1.1% 1 .1 by 1850. But the mere presence of any free black men and women in a slave society created numerous questions regarding the assumptions that served as the basis for race-based enslavement. White defense of a system that by the 1820s the world increasingly rejected rested in part on a self-fulfilling argument that slavery was good for people who originated in Africa since, whites claimed, they could not survive in a complex modern society without the regimentation and work structure slavery imposed. The presence of emancipated or free blacks, it was believed, threatened the foundations of slavery in at least two ways. First, free blacks, by their very presence, endangered the physical security of planters and their investment in slaves, as they were widely thought to be the instigators of rebellion. Secondly, the presence of free blacks who labored for wages or independently sustained themselves through farming or small business ventures undermined one of the most important excuses for perpetuating slavery, black dependency and white control over black bodies. Connie, how did enslaved people become free in a slave society? The barriers to freedom were impossibly high, but there were a variety of ways the enslaved might transition to the status of free blacks. 
During the colonial period, enslaved men and women emancipated themselves through escape and the creation of communities often associated with indigenous people in remote areas. Spanish Florida played an important role in the escape plans of the enslaved in Georgia and South Carolina. Georgia's initial colonial charter forbade slavery in the colony in the hope that land cultivated in small family farms could act as a buffer between Florida and South Carolina to discourage escapes and flight to the Spanish sanctuary. When the Spanish relinquished control over Florida to the United States, many free blacks made their way to Cuba, not trusting the United States to protect their interests. In the early national period of U.S. history, a small percentage of planners voiced their personal conflict between a nation based on equality of man and their own slaveholding. A few emancipated their slaves, but often only through their wills after a lifetime of reaping the economic benefits of slaveholding. We can find scattered examples of the enslaved purchasing their own freedom through agreements with their enslavers and after decades of labor. More black women than men acquired freedom. Some records suggest that a lifetime of successful childbearing could lead to emancipation. When whites emancipated slaves, they discouraged them from remaining within the state where they had lived. Some enslavers even required that they return to Africa, a place where often they had not lived for generations. Southern states increasingly enacted legislation to enforce outmigration of free blacks, taxed them at higher rates than whites, denied them the rights of other Americans, and generally imposed restrictions that undermined their security within their own homes and communities. How did territorial Florida deal with free blacks who already had a history of rights under Spanish rule? Histories of the period recognized the importance of the shift from Spanish paternalism to the U.S. control over slaves and free blacks. But an article published in 2019 in the Florida Historical Quarterly provides a deeply researched and accessible history of the period that integrates the local experiences of free blacks with the expanding territorial efforts to exert control and the national and international context of the debate over slavery. The article titled Free Black Citizenship and the Constitution in Florida Courts, 1821-1846, was written by Craig Butinger, Professor Emeritus of History at Jacksonville University. The transfer of Florida from Spain to the United States occurred as Americans confronted the first two national crises on slavery, the admission of Missouri as a slave state to the Union and the debate over the Missouri Constitution, which prohibited the migration of free blacks into the state. The Missouri Compromise produced a plan for the future admission of free enslaved states from the territory acquired through the Louisiana Purchase. The compromise would come into play when Florida received statehood as a slave state paired with Iowa as a free state in 1845. In a second compromise, Missouri's Constitution was approved with the provision that the rights of American citizens could not be abridged, an ambiguous phrase that did not resolve the issue and allowed other states to single out free blacks for restrictions on movement, assembly, and personal security. As Butiger notes, St. Augustine played the starring role in attempting to adjudicate the rights of free blacks in the 1820s. Spanish officials had attempted to 
protect the rights of free blacks with Article 6 of the Adams-Onis Treaty, which stated, quote, free inhabitants of the territory were admitted to the enjoyment of all the privileges, rights, and immunities of the citizens of the United States, end quote. However, by October 1821, St. Augustine had enacted a $2 levy on all free people of color. Patrols were empowered to enter the homes of free blacks and subjected them to curfews and bans on meetings, among other restrictions. The third city council session levied additional taxes and required free blacks to register with the clerk of the council. In 1825, James F. Clark, the white head of a mixed-race family, brought legal action charging discrimination in the taxation rates. The Territorial Council initially did not write laws discriminating against free blacks, but in 1826, the Territorial Council began a campaign to prevent the migration of free blacks into the territory, confined black testimony in trials to cases involving slaves or other free blacks, grant justices of the peace summary power to punish free black use of abusive or provoking language or lifting his or her hand against anyone not black or mulatto. Tab Smith, a prosperous black businessman in St. Augustine, was at the center of the second lawsuit. Arrested for striking a white employee, his suit claimed that the territorial laws regulating the actions of free blacks were unconstitutional. Both cases appeared in the court of Judge Joseph L. Smith, who is sympathetic to legal issues brought in both suits. The Florida Herald newspaper proved to be another powerful ally. Judge Smith, facing a campaign for removal by President Andrew Jackson, ruled in favor of Smith on a technicality, but did not rule on the Clark case before he was removed from the bench and replaced with Georgia Congressman Robert R. Reed, whose views on the rights of free blacks fit better with those of the emerging Southern position on the constitutionality of slavery. Florida's Territorial Council continued in its efforts to strengthen the regulation and enhance taxation of free blacks, including a provision that allowed for the sale of free blacks into slavery if they failed to meet their debt obligations. Interesting. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. This is Florida Frontiers. Club Chiffon in Tampa, the South Street Casino in Orlando, and the Cotton Club in Gainesville are just a few of the Florida venues that were part of the Chitlin Circuit. Holly Baker has more. In the early 20th century, during the time of racial segregation, the Chitlin Circuit was a collection of entertainment venues, primarily located in the South, that supported black musicians and performers. Ennis Davis is an urban planning consultant and a trustee for the Florida Trust for Historic Preservation. He told me about the Chitlin Circuit in Florida. The Chitlin Circuit was basically a collective name given to a series of Black-owned nightclubs, dance halls, juke joints, and theaters that were safe and acceptable for African-American entertainers to perform during segregation. Some notable venues on the Chitlin Circuit would have been the Cotton Club or the Apollo Theater in Harlem, the Royal Peacock in Atlanta, Fox Theater in Detroit, or the Howard Theater in in Washington, D.C. Now, that term 
we all know what chitlins are. Chitlins are a dish made from pig intestines that actually date back to slavery. So chitlins and the dish themselves were a dish that the enslaved were forced to basically nurture themselves with the less desirable parts of animals that were provided by the enslaver. So what was provided in a demeaning manner turned out into a, a soul food delicacy that remains popular in African-American communities today. However, like the chitlins, the circuit was also established to nurture those African-American performers during a time when they weren't allowed in most white-owned venues. Florida nightclubs, dance halls, juke joints, and theaters were popular stops on the chitlin circuit. Florida is home to a, a number of venues from the circuit that still survive today. There's a Baker's Flamingo Bar and Grill, which is in Fort Pierce. And, uh, you know, it's very interesting because a lot of people who do know about the Chitlin Circuit do associate it with larger cities. But these venues can be found in major cities, smaller cities such as Fort Pierce, and even places out in the middle of the woods, old turpentine camps and things of that nature in rural areas. Baker's Flamingo Bar and Grill in Fort Pierce was actually established in the 1950s by a gentleman by the name of Levy Baker. And some of the Chitlin Circuit performers who played there over the years uh, include Billie Holiday, James Brown, and the Famous Flames. Another club that's actually still in business today is in Tallahassee. That is the Bradfordville Blues Club, located just really outside of Tallahassee. And it is the first site in Florida that is listed on the Mississippi Blues Trail. It's still located on a rural dirt road built by a family who had had that land since slavery. It is a place for the likes of B.B. King, Chuck Berry, Bobby Blue Bland, Sonny Seals, Little Milton, and Jimmy Rogers have performed over the years. And even in 2012, it was named by Downbeat Magazine as one of the top international music venues you know, up in Jacksonville, there is what is now known as the Clara White Mission. But before it was the Clara White Mission, it was built as a Globe Theater. The building actually predates what is known as the Chitlin Circuit. However, uh, this is location where one of the first documented performances and the mentioning of blues on the public stage actually took place in the U.S. in 1910. Some of the performers who played at that particular location include Ma Rainey, who is known as the Mother of Blues, and Jelly Roll Morton, who was known uh, for his early contributions to what is now known as jazz. For decades, the Chitlin Circuit served as a valuable network for Black entertainers, as well as a safe social space for African Americans living in the segregated South. Many venues on Florida's Chitlin Circuit still survive today. Ennis Davis. Even across the, the state today, you can still find locations that people assume have nothing to do with music. You can look at Masonic halls, there are churches, there are even schools uh, where musicians would have played at various venues. An example of a Masonic Lodge would be the Deepwater uh, City Elks Lodge in Pensacola, uh, Florida. The Deepwater in the Elks is, uh, you know, it's still going. And I actually had an opportunity to uh, get a tour, uh, a neighborhood tour of the neighborhood during the 2019 Florida Preservation Conference. And along that tour, we stopped uh, at the Elks Lodge and uh, there was live music going on that night. But if you look back at the Elks Lodge's history, the building was actually built back in 1937. And over the years, you know, during segregation when the Chitlin Circuit was, was really booming, some of the uh, acts that performed at that particular space included Dizzy Gillespie, 
Ellis Fitzgerald and Roy Brown. So it was really amazing just to sit, you know, in a space which uh, so much history and heritage that was still serving the neighborhood and its original purpose, even though, you know, we're deep into the 21st century. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, find us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Holly Baker and Connie Lester. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.